you have a Bible with you, uh, keep it open to Matthew 6. We will return to it. Or if you have notes or like a journal, uh, have that available. One of the things that as we read the scriptures and we stand underneath them, this text, this text sometimes stirs in us something that we don't like. When, yeah, and just frankly, if like we're being honest, when the church when like the institution of the church talks about money, most of us carry in this like murky mixed bag of emotion and feeling. And I just want to like share and state out loud today that God's heart, God's heart is about your heart. He's not about your money or your stuff. All through Matthew 6, Jesus has been poking and prodding to get down to the root of what's really going on inside of your heart. And today is no different. We've looked at giving to the needy and not doing that to be seen, but doing that to, to truly bless the needy, um, and that that comes from a place of heart. We've talked about prayer and how that comes not from being seen by others that they would think you're holy, but a place from deep inside your heart where your, your Father in heaven, think of that, that phrase for a second, your Father in heaven sees and rewards that. In the same way, we've talked about fasting and how that's... A, Fasting is a regular practice for followers of Jesus. And how that is not about like us being seen as uh, like laying down or sacrificing or suffering so others could see us, but it's actually about us with our bodies moving toward the person of Jesus. Again, time and time and time in the heart, in, in, in chapter six of Sermon on the Mount, the very center, what, what Jesus is getting after is the center, central thing he's at in all of our lives, which is our heart. He's not trying to manipulate your external behavior. Don't believe that lie. That's not what he's after. Jesus is not after a more moral group than the world. That's not what he's after. Jesus is after our heart. And so as we come to this section today, uh, like I said, most of us carry this like mixed bag uh, of, of feelings and emotions or just like, I don't even know this guy, Nick, and he's going to talk about money and God, and I don't know that I trust that. And I have like baggage. I don't know. There's probably people in the room who have like baggage and hurt from the way church has talked about money. Has told you like you can't possess things and follow Jesus, rather than nuance the tension of what it really means to follow Jesus and that all of our things actually come from him and therefore belong to him. So just want to say that out loud, like try to take the tension out of the air and allow Jesus to do work in our hearts again this morning. Because Jesus' intention is not about getting after the symptoms of who you are on the outside, but Jesus' intention is about your heart. And so we want to start back in verse 22. I want to read this out loud, just the first section. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. What does this mean? I want to paint a little bit of a picture so we can begin to understand what I think uh, the, the, the scriptures, the text is getting after here. Um, if you've ever lived somewhere where it's cold, like it's snowy, 
or there's ice on the windshield when you wake up in the morning, or maybe you've never lived there, but you've vacationed there. You like went to Tahoe for a week in winter and you woke up and there was ice on the windshield and you don't have an ice scraper because you live in Bakersfield. Why would you have an ice scraper? Um, so you don't really know what to do. I have a confession that when I used to live in Bend, Oregon, and when I slept in late, there would be many, too many a morning where I would begin my drive without the ice shaved off of my windshield. And if you've lived in cold weather, you know this is like everyone sort of does it, and, and it's dangerous, and it's not a good idea, um, but it's, sometimes you just don't have the time to, to like clean the windshield off before you get in the car and start driving to work. But I want to use that as a picture of like what's happening on the windshield when there is ice on affects both the inside, what's taking place on the inside of the car. It takes place like it affects my decision making and what I'm seeing and not seeing, the blurriness through which I see and what's taking place on the outside of the car, the things that I perceive versus what reality actually is. In this phrase, the eye is the lamp of the body, I want you to think of that like the eye is the place like a windshield covered in ice sometimes that, that distinguishes between what's happening on the inside of your life and the outside of your life. Or maybe said differently, what's happening in the inward parts of who you are and what's happening in the external parts of who you are. And so when Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, um, what he's getting after uh, is like, like these two things, the internal and the external coming together. The word healthy in the Greek it actually has a really wide range of meaning. And while I think healthy fits and still applies to understand what Jesus is saying here, and it's, it's no different than what he's been saying throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew collectively, Jesus is calling out the discrepancy between what's happening outside of us, what's happening in the external versus what's happening inside of us, what's happening in the internal. So when the word healthy is used here, it's, it's right, but maybe a better word would be like wholeness or completeness. If your eyes are whole and complete, your whole body will be full of light. You see, the eye paints a picture, uh, and in particular in the ancient Near East, they believed that, that the eye was the window between the inside and the outside. It wasn't a metaphor to understand sort of what Jesus is talking about. It's about the, the way you receive things that happen in the world is through your eye. The way you see things in the world affects, starts with your inward being, starts with who you are on the inside, but your eye perceives things a certain way. And so the window between the inside and the outside in the ancient Near East is our eye. And so when, when Jesus says this, when he says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Maybe a re rephrase would be, if your eye is complete, your whole body will be full of light. Or if your eye is whole, then what's happening on the inside will be happening on the outside. You see, a life that is whole is complete from the inside out. And this is, like I said earlier, what Jesus has literally been getting after the entire time through the Sermon on the Mount. On the outside, we say and think that 
much of our life is a manifestation of the kingdom of God, but so often our hearts have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Our hearts belong to us or our mixed emotions or the mixed bag of who we are. And our, what, what ends up happening, at least in my world, what ends up happening is our inside world and our outside world can become at odds with one another. You see, if your inside world and your outside world are at odds, your whole body will be filled with darkness, is what the scriptures go on to say. If your eyes are healthy, or unhealthy, sorry. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What Jesus is getting after is living a congruent life. A life where the inside and the outside match. And, and this, is, uh, this is, in some ways, like revolutionary for who we are today. We live such compartmentalized lives where like church is this thing, following Jesus is this thing we do on Sunday mornings, but I can live however I please the other days of the week. Or when I'm at work, I'm like hustling hard to earn a dollar so that my family can vacate my life as often as possible, like get away from my life as frequently as we can. You see, there's this incongruence that happens between the inside and the outside of who we are. And this isn't, no, like no one gets to uh, not deal with this. That's a double negative. I know it doesn't make sense. Let me see if I can rephrase it real quick. Everyone has to deal with this reality. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was sitting with uh, uh, a friend of mine who I go and see, who's my therapist, and he asked, what do you really want to be in life? And I listed some, some beautiful things. I want to be a great husband to my wife, Jackie. I want to be able to champion her dreams and her visions, the things that Jesus put inside of her. And I talked about how I want to be a great father to my children. And I remember after the session ended, I went and got in my car and just began to weep and go, I really want my inside to match my outside. Because all of those things live in my heart, but so rarely do those things manifest in the course of my life. What I really want is that like the beat of my heart to be the manifestation of my life. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about, uh, when he talks about the eye being a window. That, that these two pieces of our world, the internal world that we are like, and in, in just and honestly, we're a mixed bag internally. We are a mixed bag. You have beautiful desires and you have wretched desires. They both exist within us. But at the end of the day, we know we want our hearts, our lives, all that we are to be about Jesus and his kingdom. And that's why he gives this teaching, is that he might bring those things a bit closer in alignment. He might poke and prod at some of the things that our heart holds on to that actually don't have to do with the kingdom of God. They have more to do with the kingdom of, of Nick or the kingdom of something else, or the kingdom of the American dream, or whatever phrase you want to put at the end there, it has some other kingdom associated with it and not the kingdom of Jesus, not the kingdom of good news, not the gospel of the kingdom that's coming to reign 
on earth as it is in heaven. And so we desire to be people who are not filled with darkness, but filled with light in every fiber of our being. One of the realities that we have to accept about this teaching is that we don't ever land here. This is, this is such a like American modern way that like once I get, I will be done. Once I get to this place, I remember thinking like life, I remember being a high schooler and thinking like once I get my degree, then I'll be good. Or once I get married, then I'll be good. Once I have a job good enough to pay my bills, then I'll be good. Like when does it stop? It doesn't. It doesn't stop. If we use the marks of this world, if we use the marks of, dare say, the American dream, it doesn't ever stop. We always have to live our life like up into the right. And if we ever fail or struggle or there's like a dip in the line, we feel inadequate or not enough or we don't measure up. And Jesus here is saying like, I just want your inside to match your outside. I'm not telling you that everything has to always be okay. I caught that. I'm impressed. I'm not telling you that everything has to be okay all the time. That'd be Jesus. Thank you, Richie. And so Jesus again today puts his finger on money and generosity, not to make you feel bad or to shame you or to guilt you, but because he wants you to flourish in his kingdom. He wants you to flourish in this life. And he doesn't share his loyalty or your devotion with something as frivolous as money. He will not do it. Let's continue. Uh, verse 23 and 24. Uh, sorry, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus paints a really stark picture of contrast here about love and hate and God and money. And Jesus' words are serious, and we should treat them like they are so. He's the creator of the world. I think we should give him the right to be able to speak to our hearts and love and hate and himself and money. We should allow ourselves to sit under those truths and the spirit to stir things in our hearts that we might be formed into more kingdom-like people. And just for a second, I want you to think about the way you view money. Or maybe safer, like if I just poked something sacred, and I probably did, maybe safer it becomes more, uh, it becomes easier to feel, maybe think about the way your parents viewed money. Often how we view money is, is what we inherited from our family of origin. So sometimes this is like when I have a dollar, I spend it because I don't know when I'll have another dollar. Or uh, maybe we learned how to treat money by how our parents didn't treat money. Whatever that is for you, it's important that we recognize as people who belong to Jesus the views and convictions we carry about money. Is money just a means to an end? Is money's role in our life to ensure that we have as much as possible in case one day we don't anymore? Is money a pathway to comfort and our comfortability? Is it a semblance of control in our life? 
feel like someone needs to hear that today. Is money a semblance of control? God wants to invite you to give control to him. And so often money can be a semblance of control in our lives. So we inherit language and attitudes around money. We inherit values and convictions around money. And we get this, and, and sometimes I think it's actually the thing we get most from our family of origin. Um, but one of the beautiful things about following the way of Jesus is Jesus wants to reparent. Jesus wants to reparent our values and convictions to be in line with his. You see, when you say yes to following Jesus, like salvation takes place and eternal life takes place, but also baked into that, like the very real manifestation is you become a different person on earth. You become a different, you become an ambassador of his. You become someone who's caught up in a new way to be human, a new way to live. And so as we like dive into this conversation, we must be open to the idea that Jesus wants to reframe our minds, our convictions, our understanding of money. You see, the kingdom's values around money are very different from the American values around money. And I want to explore a little bit of where that comes from. I would suggest that the root of us overvaluing money in our lives stives both from the way we view work and the way we view comfort. And last week, Brandon spoke a bit about comfort and uh, consumerism that takes place in our world today. And today, I just want to dive into a little bit of like the theology of work, because where we spend most of our lives is working, laboring in some capacity. And I think it's important as we talk about money, we talk about this thing that we give ourselves to often that forms us in some way, that we have a biblical, a biblical understanding of what it means to work as a follower of Jesus. So just in your mind's eye, what is the role of your job in your life? What is the role of the job in your life? Is it to earn a living for your family? Or maybe it's to contribute to the world around you. Is it to bless others and, and serve them in a time of need? Or is it to ensure that you make enough money to get out of the Bakersfield heat in the summer? And if we're honest, it's likely a mixed bag of these things. But I think for us to understand how Jesus wants us to view money, we actually need to start with how we should view work. I just want to imagine for a second a 23-year-old fresh out of Cal State Bakersfield, teaching credential in hand, ready to take on the world. And there's a lot of educators in the room. That's why I use the analogy, because we see these people all the time. Uh, but this 23-year-old gets a job teaching history at a middle school here in town, and they're so excited for their first day of being a teacher. And by the end of week one, they are so exhausted of being a teacher. It's nothing like what they thought it was going to be. It's hard. It's a grind. But because they got into this job, not necessarily for students, but for summers off and the retirement and the good benefits, they decide to continue to grind for the next 29 years until the clock strikes 30 and they finally get the thing they've actually always wanted. Treating work like that is going to frame us and form us 
in a certain way. Or take someone who has skills with numbers, and so after undergrad, they go get a graduate degree. They work for a CPA firm. They grind hard in March and April, but they just want to make enough money to get out of town when it's hot or on the weekends. Or someone takes over a family farm. And they work hard to take care of the land and the animals. Their schedule is different from the rest of us in the world. They don't work a nine to five. They work like seasons and sunshine. Their job has them dependent upon rain and water from the ground. So it actually forms in them a bit more humility than it does the rest of us. Because their job requires on things they can't necessarily control. In some years they make a little. Most years they make enough. In some years they make a lot. I want you to contrast that or any of those stories with a different sort of picture of a a nurse who shows up to work early, not to impress her boss, but to pray, to find her heart in Jesus before she moves into the day. And as she walks around and makes her rounds, she grabs the chart. She says, Lord, have mercy on this person before she walks in the room and desires both to provide care for them, but also is open to the idea of providing care for their soul while they're there. And that doesn't mean that we all need to quit our jobs and become nurses. Quite the opposite, in fact. What we need to do is become attentive to Christ and the manifested work of the Spirit in our lives each and every day. If work is something we do to earn a dollar then we will spend the majority of our lives, whether we recognize it or not, oriented toward money. And I want to just like throw in the caveat. Absolutely, there is a reality that like we, we, we should work. We should earn money. That's a good thing. Don't like quit your job and stay home because you don't know what to do. There are times people in the world who like need to find work that they could eat. So I want to like be realistic about that notion. But I also want to understand that in our American context, work and money are more knit together than we give it credit for. So every week, whether you're an educator, a CPA, small business owner, whatever it is you do for a living, giving your 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week towards something, we have to understand that whatever we're giving ourselves to becomes the frame of reference that infects the rest of our lives. Whatever we spend our time in, wherever our heart is oriented, when we go to work in the morning and we labor throughout the day, that has to have some sort of effect on how we view money in the rest of the world. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These, this, this 
phrase, sometimes in the scriptures we call it like the cultural mandate. This is where God invites us to go take the resources of life and make something out of them. This is where God invites us to rule, fill, and subdue the earth. See, these words, rule, fill, and subdue, they are work words. From the very beginning, pre-fall, I want to just like throw this in for all of you that thought one day when I die and I'm in heaven, there will be no more work for me to do. I would like to pop that bubble today. From before the fall, there is a picture and a practice of us being in the garden with God where we have responsibility to maintain and advance the space in the garden. There is work to be done. Tim Keller says that Nope, nope, Tim Keller. Tim Keller describes work. He says, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. People in particular thrive and flourish. So our, our, part of our hope is that as we come into this text today, that we reimagine what like holy work is. We reimagine not, not necessarily the things that we do for a living, although if that's like Jesus does that too, I don't want to throw that away, but that we reimagine the like why behind the reason we do the things that we do. We allow that our, our primary like motive of going into the world and working throughout the week, not to be to make a dollar, but to be that like we make, might make the like invisible God visible where we are. That we might make the invisible God visible where we are. John Mark Comer, pastor and author out of Portland says, our job is to make the invisible God visible to mirror and mimic what he is like to the world. We can glorify God by doing our work in such a way that we make the invisible God visible by what we do and how we do it. What John Mark is talking about here is that we have a role to play in the world. Both Tim Keller's quote of like taking the resources, the things around us, and we all have unique jobs that, that ask unique things of us. We take whatever those things are and we make something beautiful as a like honoring gift to God with that. Whether you work with people and desire just to bless and pray and, and love those around you, or you work with like actual resources and your job is to like get grapes off the vine, whatever it is, we take those things and we bring them as an act of like love and worship and service to Jesus. And we work not for our own well-being or even the well-being of the world, but we, we work for Jesus as our king. We labor with a kingdom mindset in place. That whatever we do, we do it unto him. There was a trend that's been going around Christian circles for a long time. It says, I'm not a human doing, I'm a human being. Which is this invitation back away from being a person who just does things, back to like Sabbath and rest. And those are good and they're right, that we should rest in our identity in Christ, that we should have balance in our world. But we must not take that too literally because, like I said in the beginning, you were created to work too. 
We must understand that work is not an end to a means. Work is not just a way to make more money for my family. Work is a holy act unto God for his glory. Because what happens when we have these two things in contrast, where we like go to work because it's something we kind of enjoy, but our real goal is to make enough money to do what we want, and we hold that in contrast with, I have these skill sets or these things that I enjoy, and I'm going to step into them as I serve Jesus faithfully in this place. Those are two very different things with two very different end goals. And so while we passively, I would say, me included, participate in the first one, I go to work to earn money to do what I would like, that my family could do what we want. That passively, as I engage in that, it it forms me, it does something to me. When work is something that I do so I get what I want or be what I want, it, it, it causes something to happen deep down in my heart. My heart becomes oriented not toward the way of the kingdom, not toward Jesus flourishing, not toward me having a vocational presence in the place where I am. It becomes about me again. It becomes about the dollars in my pocket and the weekends away at the coast. I become closed off to like that God's actually at work in the people around you. The people who you work with, God's at work in their lives. He's stirring out of kindness. He's stirring people to repentance. But so often I'm just like narrowly focused on the thing that I have to get done so I can go home because I was late last night and I don't want to be late again, but I just want to make enough money so my family can rest a little bit. And David Pennington would say that what one pursues de facto is what one treasures. Like what one pursues in fact becomes one's treasures. And in that, it reposes one's trust and confidence. So if we pursue a comfortable, easy, well-financed life, that will, in fact, become our treasure. And in that, our trust and our confidence will live. And that is the thing that Jesus is poking at today. That is the thing that you have trust and confidence in any semblance of money or treasure or whatever that could possibly provide apart from him, that's the thing in your heart that Jesus wants to undo that you would experience him in that space. You see, what Pennington is saying is that our lives, if they're spent toward a picture of, of working primarily for money, then we function day to day from a place primarily of money. And that word money might disturb you. Maybe treasures is better. I don't know. But, but we have these things that we subconsciously orient our lives to, and they form us. And Jesus wants to reframe the way we view work, that we don't labor for a dollar, but we labor for the kingdom. We labor for his will to happen on earth as it is in heaven. We labor to bless those people around us that we might be like a ministering balm to a hurting world that we're engaged in. In In a book titled The Wealth as Peril and Obligation. That title alone, Wealth and as Peril and Obligation. Sandra Wheeler says this, we must resist the cultural flow to produce frantically 
and instead take time to delight in our work. Most of us, if we're just being honest today, run around frantically producing. And myself included, this is not like, you all should do better. This is all of us. Most of us spend time running around frantically producing rather than delighting in our work. Verse 24, again, says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, cannot serve both God and money. Jesus paints a very black and white picture of serving money or serving God. Serving a self-built kingdom from money or a God-ordained kingdom that is much bigger than you could ever fulfill on your own. But what you cannot do is you cannot serve both. You see, God will share himself. And at times, God will share his land. But God will not share the devotion of his people. God will not share the devotion of his people. You see, all of us have a devotion and a motivation deep down in our hearts for why we do the things that we do. Jesus included human. He's a human. He's God in the flesh, but he's fully human. Jesus has motivation. In Hebrews 12, too, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Notice the motivation at the front. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so what what Jesus is inviting us to do today is change, like transform from the inside out the motivation of our hearts to be oriented, reoriented, redeemed toward the kingdom of God. And I think he wants to do that through the way that we view our nine to five. The way that we view going to work tomorrow morning. The coworkers that we tolerate May they become people we pray for as an outpost of kingdom mission, as you're an ambassador of the kingdom. And and maybe this isn't forever. Maybe where you work is not where you're going to be the next 40 years, but right now it's where you are. And may the kingdom become more manifest where you are in your workplace as we orient our hearts away from provision and comfort and toward Jesus. Our calendars are full of things, full of work and meetings, full of lunches and times away. But our our hope is that in all things that we touch, in all things in our calendars, in all spaces where we spend time, that that is an intentional kingdom step with our hearts and with our lives, that we're both present to God in those spaces and present to those around us. That whatever you love and whatever you serve, that we understand that whatever you love and whatever you serve, those things will form you. And that we culturally have generally been passive about that. Until this week, it was a very passive thought that what I spend 40 hours a week doing forms me, if I'm just honest. I just don't think about it that often because it's a responsibility that needs to get done. And that's true but I don't think that's kingdom intentionality. So what I think Jesus is poking in our hearts here is that our, our, our lives, our jobs would be ordered by kingdom intentionality before they are anything else. 
And let us be clear, this is, this is a, a temptation that exists for humanity in general, macro, but also a very specific one for our city. Many of the reasons we end up in this city is because it's affordable and it's easy. We can do the things that we want nearby. We can get to the coast in two hours, an hour and a half if you drive like Brandon. He nodded, he knows. We can get to Yosemite in two and a half hours, go see a play in LA, catch a Dodger game the next day, or a Giants game, Katie, four hours, it's a little farther. Generally speaking, our jobs aren't too demanding, not when we compare them to like people who are in the hustle at the, in San Francisco. And some of your jobs are that demanding. I'm not trying to knock. I'm just saying like a general stereotype of the city would be fair to say that, that, that generally the, the things that we participate in are, are fairly smooth, fairly easy. And I think the downfall of that in some ways is it allows us to be passive about them. We become less intentional because it's something I can do and a responsibility that needs to be done. And so therefore, I just sort of give my life, my next 30, 35, 40 years to this thing that actually forms me more in my inward heart than I would ever, ever be willing to realize. And so as we go out in the world and we, we take the resources of the world to make something beautiful of them, we don't do that for money. Jesus wants to redeem that narrative. What a, like, what a silly narrative for us to passively live into, that we spend 40 years to make a dollar, and then 20 years later, we die. Jesus wants to redeem that narrative that says that like everywhere you go, every workplace you touch, maybe you stay at home and children, that is harder work than I will ever do. But whatever it is that you do, that you go into that space with kingdom mindset, hoping that by the power of the Spirit, you could be just like a small deposit in your workplace of what Jesus is doing in the world. So many people around us need hope, and we, we have a true hope. We have a real hope. I want to read Mark 10. If you have your Bible on you, um, go ahead and turn to Mark 10 really quickly. And this is the story of the rich young ruler. And we're not going to talk about it long, um, just really, really briefly. I don't think I have a slide for it. I don't. Mark 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, I have kept, I have, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Hear that today. Like any emotion or like stirring that's going on in your heart, I would, I would suggest is the Spirit, like the Father sending the Spirit to love you. Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What the story tells us but the story tells us Jesus is not against possessions. Jesus is not telling all of you to go sell your stuff to the poor today. He is telling you to follow him. But what Jesus is doing here is he's putting his finger on the heart of this man who has much wealth, who has given his life to building wealth, to making wealth. And Jesus is saying, that thing that resides in your heart, that's the thing I want. He doesn't want it because it's money and possessions. He wants it because he wants his heart. And so the invitation for us today is in that same sort of way, take like the American capitalism, which again is a mixed bag, both pro and con, that we've inherited as a part of this culture and as a part of our family of origin, and that we come to Jesus that he might reparent us in the way of the kingdom today, that our hearts, that our hearts would belong to him alone. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that you don't deal with like second best. You won't take us like kind of loving you and kind of being a part of your kingdom and kind of like interacting with you a bit. Like you want all of who we are. The scriptures say that we were bought at a price by the blood of Jesus. And so in accordance with that, we uh, come open-handed and open-hearted and ask that your spirit would minister and do work in our hearts, that we would not push this away as like some sort of churchy money talk, that this is really about like King Jesus who's enthroned in the heavens, who we interact with as, as you change us and form us into the people that like flourish in the way of the kingdom. Would you do that in this place today, God? That is not a work that men can create. That is a work from God above. And so we ask, God, that you would do that in our hearts as we fall more and more and more in love with you. I'm even just enamored by the reality that, like, God, you will not settle for my second. You will not settle for me sharing my devotion with other things. You will settle alone for my devotion being fully to you, Jesus. And while there's beauty in all the other things, you will not settle except for my devotion to you. And we thank you for that, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Today, we want to introduce a new practice to the life of River and Way. And we, we if you've been here uh, from the beginning, you will know that we've intentionally not talked about money until the scriptures do. We've never invited you to give or asked anyone to give money at River and Way. And, and frankly, a part of that is like, we've just wanted to distance ourselves from a lot of the church experience some of us have had where it feels like, man, the church is hustling to get a dollar. And we just, we just wanted to create space between that. But one of the things that has been stirring in us for a while in this text in particular just brought to fruition is that like, by not talking about giving unto Jesus, by not talking about generosity, we're actually missing a way to be counterformed by the good news of the kingdom. We're missing a way to follow in the way and the path of Jesus. 
And so for a little bit of time now, there's like a, a, there's a group of churches that we're in relationship with and we've been working on what we're calling like a liturgy of generosity. And this is something that we're going to recite together as a community once a month as Jesus forms in us to be a more generous people. But I also want to just like speak to the reality that like generosity is not about river and way. It's not about like putting a dollar in the bowl. It's, it's, it's nothing like that. Many of us have inherited this like 10% marker and like we don't necessarily see that in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. I actually think that like give 10% of what you earn is not the invitation of Jesus. Be a generous human in every space you exist. That's the invitation of Jesus. And so if you aren't comfortable giving to River and Way, please don't. Give, give to a nonprofit that's doing work in downtown, taking care of our neighbors who are homeless. Give to somewhere that's like feeding people. Give somewhere where you believe like the kingdom of God can flourish a bit more. And if I, I mean this, if you have wounds in particular that like there's a pause between you and being generous with River and Way, I would ask you participate where you flourish. This is not about River and Way. This is not about the church. This is about Jesus's kingdom coming in Bakersfield. It's about God's will being done in Bakersfield as it is in heaven. And so we want to form in us, as God's people, this practice of generosity in all of life. And so we're going to walk through um, the liturgy of generosity really quickly. I'm not going to ask you to recite it um, first. Uh, we're going to read it. And that way, like, I'm never going to ask you to, like, say things you haven't agreed to. That doesn't feel good. So we're going to read it. And then I'm going to invite you, if you're comfortable, to say it with us. Holy Father, this life is a gift from you. There is nothing I have that you have not given to me. All I have and all I am belong to you. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world and not your way, the way of Jesus. May my heart and my life mature in generosity until it can be said that there is no need among us. May I be found to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. We long to mirror and reflect the glory of your self-giving love. To continue in the pattern of generosity we see perfectly revealed in Christ. We offer you our praise. We offer you our hearts. We offer you our treasures. We offer you our lives. Thank you for everything you give to us. Amen. And so uh, this is a monthly practice as we believe that Jesus wants to form us into a generous people. This is something we're going to say communally once a month if you feel safe and comfortable to do so. Um, and today is going to be the first time we say it. So I would invite you to stand. 
Um, and if you uh, feel safe, feel comfortable, this is ultimately like a prayer. Ultimately a prayer. And so, oh, River, could you go back to the slideshow? Thank you. If you would join me as we say our liturgy of generosity. Holy Father, this life is a gift from you. There is nothing I have that you have not given to me. All I have and all I am belong to you. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world and not your way, the way of Jesus. May my heart and my life mature in generosity until it can be said that there is no need among us. May I be found to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. We long to mirror and reflect the glory of your self-giving love to continue in the pattern of generosity we see perfectly revealed in Christ. We offer you our praise. We offer you our hearts. We offer you our treasures. We offer you our lives. Thank you for everything you give to us. Amen.